If you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. While you're doing that, I'm going to set up a little technology, so bear with me. All right, Acts chapter 13 is where we will be. I am only going to use the screen just simply as a tool. Um, I'm certainly not going to preach from a PowerPoint presentation, but I have some things that I want to share with you that hopefully will catch you up to speed. We are working through the book of Acts in our evening services and have been since the beginning of 2018. And we have yet to, or we haven't looked at the book of Acts in about a month. So the month of September was a pretty unique month just in regards to those speaking in the evening service. And then also um, just some other things. We had a fifth Sunday. We had the celebration of service. And so it's been a month since we've studied the book of Acts. I'm really looking forward to getting back into it. But I would be remiss if I just jumped right into it and actually didn't help bring you all up to speed. So if we could have a major division or break in the New Testament that signified a change of activity or a new chapter of activity, Acts 13 would be pretty significant. In fact, when you look at Acts 13, it's not even in the middle of the book of Acts, and yet so much changes in Acts 13. And the reason is because of this phrase that you see up on the board, to the uttermost parts of the earth or of the world. Acts chapter 13 signifies or is a starting point really of the spread of the gospel to the Gentile nations. Outside of Israel, outside of the Palestine area, into really the rest of the planet or the rest of the known world. Now, I put a map up here, and this, again, is not going to be a lecture. This is not going to be a history lesson. But I just want to draw your attention to the rough area where the gospel is going to be spread as we go from Acts chapter 13 through Acts 38. It starts there, the bottom right corner, at Jerusalem. Remember Acts chapter 1-8? You'll be witnesses unto me, of me unto Jerusalem. And so in chapters 3 through 5 in the book of Acts, we see the gospel going forward. The church is born. Gospels moving in Jerusalem. And then you have Judea and Samaria. And so in Acts chapter 6 and through chapter 12, we have the gospel proclaimed and spread into those other regions. And so we get to the end of Acts chapter 12, and we have the statement. And it's actually unfortunate that we have a chapter division right there because Acts 12 and verse 25 really goes with Acts 13. It says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who is also called Mark. And here we go. Here our church history continues in a new wrinkle. And a significant wrinkle. And if you are not Jewish, you're very much part of this wrinkle. Because this is where the gospel is being openly proclaimed and intentionally proclaimed to Gentile nations. Okay? Now, big picture. Gospel progress to the rest of the world. Gospel progress to Jews. And then to Gentiles, right? But, keeping in mind that as the gospel goes forward, it's going to face opposition. And when it faces opposition, normally opposition wins out. You say, wait a second, opposition wins out? I thought the gospel goes forward and it's going to be unstoppable. Isn't that one of the main themes of Acts? Well, yes, it is. 
But when I say the opposition wins out, what we see here is the messengers of the gospel are often forced from where they're preaching to other places. They're preaching the gospel, they're declaring the gospel, and yet there's resistance, so much so that their lives are in stake. And God in his plan causes them to move to a different place where guess what? They share the gospel. And guess what? People receive it. And guess what? They receive opposition. And guess what? They get forced out some more, go somewhere else, and share the gospel elsewhere. We see this pattern throughout Acts. And then this transition ultimately in verses, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 13, it's a significant transition for the reader because up to this point, the reader's been following a guy named Peter and a group called the Apostles. Now you have this kind of Johnny-come-lately. You have this guy named Saul, who's also called Paul, who used to persecute the church, who was one of those oppressors. But then he gets saved. And in a sheer stroke of genius by our Lord, he takes one of the gospel's biggest enemies and makes him the biggest ally and has his influence being a student of the highest Jewish teacher in the land, Gamaliel, and having that actually serve as inroads for the gospel elsewhere. So from chapter 13 through chapter 28 in Acts, we see a lot of attention given to Paul and very little attention, if any, given to Peter, James, and the other apostles. They make an appearance, if I can put it that way, in Acts chapter 15 with a council in Jerusalem. But by and large, we're reading about what Paul was doing. So in Acts chapter 13, we're going to cover this chapter tonight. It's a long chapter. There's 52 verses. And I want to be mindful of your time. I'm really grateful you're here. We're not going to read all 52 verses, but what I want to do is I want to give you an overview of what happens in this chapter. This is the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. And it's a story. Okay, you have to remember, Acts is a story. It's a narrative. So I don't want us to get bogged down in the weeds of details and not have it be what it isn't. And it is a story. And stories carry drama. Stories carry excitement. Stories carry suspense. Stories carry rising action, falling action. Okay? They carry a lot that goes into what makes a story great. And I don't want us to miss out on those details. We start off with a band of believers at a brand new church in Antioch. Now, I want us to move forward here. And I want us to show you just kind of where things start. So we have Antioch up here. Jerusalem is down south there at the bottom right corner. The first church plant ever was Antioch. This is where Christians first got their name, Antioch. Or where they got their name Christian there in Antioch. So this brand new church okay, in Acts 13, they're praying, they're looking for guidance. God calls out of that band two individuals, Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas are then sent with a companion. His name is John Mark. And they leave from Antioch and they go to this island of Cyprus. And they have a gospel ministry there. But as I described before, they face opposition which actually drives them to the mainland up here, and in particular, a city called Perga. Now, they're there for a brief time, but most of the action of chapter 13 takes place in a city up north, probably the furthest north on this map, called Pisidian Antioch. And there in Pisidian Antioch, they share the gospel. They share the gospel first with Jews, and then God-fearing Gentiles also come in here. And it's greeted with rounding success. Lots of people want to come. In fact, the entire town comes to hear them speak a second time. But as you can tell, as you know the pattern, you have this opposition, this resistance growing to where Paul, Barnabas were forced out of Antioch and they go to Iconium. Next week, next Sunday evening, we'll look at chapter 14 in Acts and discuss Iconium and what happens there. Now, let's go back just a second. When we talk about Acts, we're talking about a story. But when we talk about the book of Acts and this story, a lot of times we can have this out there approach to it. Like this is a story that happened about 2,000 years ago. It happened on another corner of the planet. It happened with people in different cultures, different languages, different circumstances. 
And so we read it, and it's almost like a history class at some level. Yes, we know it's God's Word, and if we're reading through the Bible in a year, this is the necessary chapter. And it's certainly more interesting than Leviticus. And so as we read, we have this story, but a lot of times we can lose out on the so what. So this is what I want to start with, and it's also what I want us to end with. Okay? I want us to start off, first of all, by asking the question, when it comes to the gospel, reaching my Jerusalem, reaching Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, what is my role? Question number one. What is my role? Second question I want to ask, to whom is God sending me? To whom is God sending me? Okay, that's proper grammar, by the way. Several of you teach grammar in here. It's very sensitive to the word order, to whom, as opposed to God is sending me to who. That's not good. So I was very sensitive to that. Don't want to be a stumbling block to anyone. I appreciate that. To whom is God sending me? And question number three, as I go, who is God bringing to me? Now you think, wait a second, aren't questions two and three identical? And the answer is no, they're not. And we're going to see this play out in chapter 13. Okay? All right. Now, let me take a step back one more time. One more thing. Because we haven't been talking about Acts for about a month. And so as we read the book of Acts, there's some major themes that come out. And each theme here, if you want to call it that, each person, each aspect that you see on the screen is going to play a significant part as you read this book, and as you see what God does, the Holy Spirit, what His role is, God's sovereignty, the church, prayer, witness for Christ's sake, suffering, and then gospel to the Gentiles. Okay? So, I'm just going to keep that slide up there, that map. We're going to be using some of these terms, some of the cities, in just a little bit. But that's really about all I want to do with the slides. From here on out, we're going to look at the Word. Okay? So let's pray. That was all intro. Now let's look at the Word, okay? But before we do, let's pray. God, thank You so much for Your goodness to us. I don't want to waste these people's time. Lord, this is Your Word, and You certainly don't waste Your breath. So I pray that what is discussed, what is presented here from Your Word, Lord, would not just be informative. God, You don't want us to just simply learn lessons. You want us to change. That's what Christ-likeness is. And so by Your Word, through Your Spirit, may we change to become more like Your Son, Jesus Christ, and be more skillful as we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. So I really have just three observations here from the book of Acts, or from Acts chapter 13. First of all, remember that question, what is my role? Your role is chosen by God and affirmed by the church. Your role is affirmed by God. I'm sorry, it's chosen by God and affirmed by the church. So let's start there, Acts 13, verse 1. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now, as we read this story, we see, first of all, the diversity of the characters. Verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church prophets and teachers, Barnabas, and Simeon, who was called Niger. More than likely, this was a person from Africa. And Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is also a portion of Africa. And then a Menean. This is someone who more than likely grew up in Jerusalem because he was a companion of Herod the Tetrarch. So you have a pretty diverse group of individuals that's making up this body of believers there in Antioch. Why is that significant? Because of the message of the Gospel. And because of the scope of the gospel, Luke is writing to believers and he's writing about who comprises the church and how decisions are made. 
And frankly, it wasn't just Jews or national Jews that were making these decisions and that were influential in the early church. It was both Jews and Gentiles. Now, Paul and Barnabas in verse 2 and 3 acted in conjunction with the Holy Spirit's leading and the confirmation of the church in Antioch. Well, they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit says... Okay, so this is God at work in these individuals. Now, the wording there, at the end of verse 2, it says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Well, the wording here is indicative of the fact that more than likely, Saul and Barnabas knew that they were called. But what was going on here is that the Holy Spirit was working in the lives of the men and the leaders of the church of Antioch so that they would all be convinced that this was God's work. Okay, so think of having guys like Saul and Barnabas in your very young church. And all of a sudden, they're leaving. Would that be a positive impact on the church at Antioch? The answer is yes, if the leadership is all in agreement. And guess what? They were. Verse 3, then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Why is this important? Why make note of this? Here's why. Because God's will for my life and for your life as Christians, and my role in this whole mission will include the input of my church family. In fact, I should be suspicious when I feel God calling me somewhere and I don't want to tell anybody else. And so should you. When there is a sense to where you feel a very strong burden, but you're reticent to bring it up for fear of, well, I don't know how they're going to take it. Or, well... This might really have a, a, a significant impact on the church, and I just don't know if they're going to believe me, so I'm just going to slip out the back door, but I know this is God's will for my life. That's not what Paul and Barnabas did, but they probably could have if they wanted to, but they didn't. Why? Because men like Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean have just as important of a role in the work of the gospel ministry as Saul and Barnabas do. That's huge. Because in a local church, when people go out from it, yes, there will be those who do this vocationally, where this is what they do for their living, for their lifestyle. But there are others who are staying put, those in Antioch who didn't leave Antioch, who hunkered down and served with other Antiochenes, or however you pronounce their residence. And that was God's will for their life. And that's a really big deal. So much so that God would include, include it in the text. The other point I want to bring out here is that through Paul, though Paul and Barnabas could have left on their own, through prayer, they allowed for the church to be convinced. Now, that's really important because a lot of times we view prayer as a means to an end. Like, I'm going to pray so that God would enable me to do a powerful work. One theologian, his name is Thomas Chalmers, he's a Scottish evangelical preacher, said this, and this is a great quote. Prayer does not enable us to do a greater work for God. Prayer is a greater work for God. I only say that again because that's, 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 that's one to take home. Okay? Prayer does not enable us to do a greater work for God. Prayer is a greater work for God. The fact is, I don't always believe that. You know how I know I don't always believe it? Because of how little I think of prayer from a practical standpoint. Like, okay, i got to do something. Or i got to, you know, what have you done today? And then we think of all of these activities, but we don't think of spending time in prayer as this great work for God. But in fact, that's what enabled Paul and Barnabas to go forward. Okay? So we have this reality of that our role, what is my role? Our role is chosen by God and it's affirmed by the church. You know, we've seen this here at Grace Church. 
I don't know if you knew this or not, but today in Madison, Ohio, Tri-County Bible Church celebrated their 20th anniversary. Okay? Can you believe it? Uh, you say some of you, well, so what's the big deal? Tri-County Bible Church was one of our very first church plants okay, where Pastor Chris Anderson, who was here on staff, took a group, I believe about 30 or 40 members of Grace Church, and planted a church in eastern Lake County, and that church uh, still exists today, and, and uh, Pastor Joe Tierpeck is, is the pastor there. It's been 20 years, and can I tell you, that was a pretty significant chunk, not just numerically, but like from quality leadership, quality folks of our church that went out there and planted. And God blessed, but it cost something. But clearly, God was directing. In 20 years, we've been able to see God use a gospel influence in Madison, Ohio, and we praise the Lord for that. So Paul, Barnabas, their companion, here we go back to the, the story. John Mark, they're sent by the church to Antioch to give the gospel. All three were Jews carrying the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. Now, first thing that we said, your role is chosen by God and affirmed by the church. Now, the second observation, to whom is God sending me? So keep this in mind. More often than not, God will send you to people you are burdened to reach with the gospel. More often than not, God will send you to people you are burdened to reach for the gospel. So, for a moment, let's turn to the book of Romans. One book over, we're in Acts. Romans. So in Romans chapter 1, Paul lays out uh, almost like a, a mission statement for how he shares the gospel, how he evangelizes. In verse 16, one that many of you might be familiar with, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And note this, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. If you're familiar with the New Testament and you're familiar with Paul's ministry, when Paul entered a particular city, where did he go first? To the temple or to the synagogue. Why? Because those were the Jews. That's where the Jews met. And that's where he had standing with him. They were very much like him. He was a student, as I mentioned before, of the great Jewish teacher Gamaliel, which immediately gave him good standing in the eyes of the Jews there. We'll see that play out in Acts chapter 13. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Turn to Romans 9. Romans 9. In Romans chapter 9, Paul laments his own countrymen for rejecting the gospel. Verse 1 of chapter 9. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why? Why are you so sad, Paul? Verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory of the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and promises who are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh whose overall God bless forever. Amen. He loved the Jews. And while we know, as it were, the end of the story for Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul had a heart for the Jews. And when he carried out mission work, he went to the Jews. And so as we see back in Acts chapter 13, his ministry, Paul and Barnabas had frequent interaction with the Jews, and the Jews' reaction was not unlike the Jews' reaction to Jesus. In fact, let's look at Proverbs, or I'm sorry, look, let's look at Acts chapter 13. Okay? Verse 5. That's where we left off. When they reached Salamis, there it is somewhere up there, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews. So there you go. And they also had John as their helper. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, note this, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. And so as the story goes, Bar-Jesus was close to a Gentile proconsul called Sergius Paulus. 
Sergius Paulus was a man of influence. And what happens is Paul is being confronted by this Jewish magician, a person who should know better. That's really important. And Paul rebukes this false prophet in a very stern way, a very brusque way. You're reading this like, boy, oh boy, Paul just lays it on him. Why? Because he should have known better. As opposed to Sergius Paulus, this Gentile, who, by the way, was the first unaffiliated convert in the New Testament. When I say unaffiliated, this is the first person who wasn't tied to a synagogue. He was the first Gentile that wasn't coming to Jerusalem for a feast or wasn't coming to a synagogue as a God-fearer. He was the first, what we would call, pagan to accept Christ. And so we see this playing out, and as a result of Paul's rebuke of Bar-Jesus, Sergius Paulus sees this power and accepts Christ. Now let's fast forward. Paul moving on from Cyprus to Perga and then Pisidian Antioch. So uh, down in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos, came to Perga and Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going from Perga, they arrived in Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading the law and the prophets, the synagogue's officials sent to them saying, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Now, the next, oh, probably 30 verses are Paul's sermon. And as Paul presented the gospel, he presented it in a skillful way to his countrymen. You say, how is it skillful? Well, first of all, he emphasized points of existing agreement. I want you to look at verse 23. Actually, let's look at verse 22. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. Again, Paul's preaching the sermon. Pisidian Antioch. Jews are there to listen. It's in a synagogue. He says, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. Meanwhile, the Jews that are listening to this are like, hear, hear. Amen. Verse 23, from the descendants of this man, David, according to the promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Aha! So, a point of agreement would be all of Israel's history, which clearly Paul knew well, and these listeners would have been agreeable to. But he's tying Jesus to that history. Look at verse 27. Verse 27. Actually, uh, verse 26, I'm sorry. Brethren, son of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers recognize neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled by these by condemning him. You say, wait a second. How does that tie Jesus as a point of commonality? Well, the thing is, these Jewish uh, individuals, these leaders, these, these Jews there in Pisidian Antioch would have understood the Old Testament, would have understood passages like Isaiah chapter 53, which proclaimed or predicted that the Messiah would have been rejected. And so what Paul was saying is, that's exactly what happened. Everything that you read about, everything that you teach in the Old Testament prophets actually took place in Jerusalem. And it took place to Jesus. And so their ears are perked up because this Paul, the student of Gamaliel, he's speaking what we hear on a weekly basis, but he's speaking something that we don't hear on a weekly basis because not only did Paul emphasize points of agreement, he emphasized points of disagreement because in the Old Testament, to the Old Testament Jew, there would have been a sacrifice. But there was no hope for that lamb or that bull to rise from the dead. 
And yet, what does Paul bring to their attention? Yes, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but Jesus is alive. Verse 2, we preach to you, uh, verse 32, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm. And so he quotes Psalm 2, he quotes Psalm 16, and he's, listen, he's saying, listen, Psalm 16, yes, David wrote it, but David's still dead. We have his tomb with us. And Psalm 16 is talking about someone who's going to live forever. And Jesus conquered the grave. So he's speaking to them of the resurrection. He's also speaking to them of the hope that the law could not bring. Verse 38, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through Him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through Him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. You say, okay, so what? This is a great sermon he's preaching to Jews. What we take from this, not only from the content, not only the theology of it, but also the skill with which Paul is speaking. He has something in common with those he's speaking to. Remember the point. More often than not, God will send you to people you are burdened to reach with the gospel. Many of you come from families that have strong religious heritages. What do you have in common with them? What is it that your Christian faith has in common with them? That doesn't mean you blur the distinctives, but it does mean that you have some common ground with which to build on. And from this passage, we also see that God would have us emphasize the distinctives. Okay, so I can't script this stuff out. Yesterday, I have two people come to my door, and you can probably see where this is going. Two people come to my door, and they never come to my door, but they come to my door, and they're very nice, and they're, they're older women, and they have their Bibles with them, and they're dressed very nicely and professionally, and they have a copy of the Watchtower magazine, and, and so they knock on my door, and the words that came out of their mouth, if, if you're not a, 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 if you don't know your word, then, then you could really fall for this. What they said, he said, hello, I'm so-and-so, and I'm such-and-such, -such, I'm here, and the reason why we're here is we want you, we want to tell you, and we want to encourage you to read your Bible. I'd say that too, wouldn't you? So we want you to read your Bible. And this pamphlet, and they hand out the Watchtower Magazine, is a really helpful tool to be able to explain what the Bible says. Da, 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 da. And the conversation was very brief. And, and because of just where we are from a cultural standpoint, I'm a man, they're women, I'm going to be gracious. If they were, if, I'll be honest with you, if it were men to men, I might be a bit more fervent, but, you know. So all that to say, it was very clear that there were points of disagreement that would not be and could not be reconciled. And for me to sit and listen and just say, yeah, I, I want you, you definitely read the Bible. Absolutely. And just kind of leave it at that and say, no, thanks. No, appreciate you coming by. Would do a disservice to the truth of God's word. Okay, so even when Paul and Barnabas are speaking to their fellow countrymen, even when they have a lot to agree upon, there was a lot that wasn't in agreement. And Paul was not afraid to be able to address that and to do it in a winsome way. How do we know it's winsome? Look at verse 42. And Paul and Barnabas, as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue the grace of God. Check this out, verse 44. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. Amen. How great is that? The whole city's there. Ah, but guess what rears its ugly head? Opposition. We could see it coming. It came in Cyprus. It came even before that with Jesus. I mean, there were big crowds to hear Jesus speak too. And here we have it again, verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. 
Paul emphasized points of existing agreement. Paul emphasized points of disagreement. And Paul ultimately indicted their rejection. He says, verse 46, it was necessary the Word of God be spoken to you first. But since you repudiate it, and note the wording, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. You're condemning yourselves in your rejection. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And so we have this calling. If I can bring us back, you know, back to like maybe a 20,000 foot view, we have this calling by God, affirming by the church, these believers going forward, carrying a message to who they were burdened to. But then finally, in the process of going where they were sent, God drew other souls that weren't in the target audience, as it were. And I think that's noteworthy for us. In the process of going where God sends you, God will draw other souls outside your target audience. So, for sake of illustration, sometimes this happens in business where you have a product that is designed for a certain function and it's designed for a target audience and it doesn't really meet that target audience, but there's another audience that sees it something different, sees it differently and holds on to it and actually the product becomes better known for what it wasn't designed to do. So back in the 1920s, there was a soap company in Cincinnati called Kutol. I think that's how you pronounce it. Kutol? Any of you familiar with Kutol? Okay. All right, good. So if I were mispronouncing it, you wouldn't know. All right, so there's Kutol. There's a soap company. And at that time, homes were heated by coal. And so you'd have burning coal. And so it was very common for soot to accumulate on the walls of homes. So Kutol, this company, was, their business was, was actually... Uh, declining, they were about to uh, shut their doors. They were challenged to design a product that, ha- that could help take the soot off of the walls. And so they designed this like clay material. And it basically was designed as a wallpaper cleaner. And so they had a contract with Kroger grocery stores where they would sell it. And so for a while, it was actually quite popular where people, uh, they took it, they, they bought it, they had this, like, this, this material, and they would wipe their walls with it, and it would be able to wipe the soot. Now, you say, why didn't they use you know, a wet rag? Well, because of the nature of the wallpaper, the water would have you know, really harmed the wallpaper. And so this, this material was able to take the soot off. Well, enter World War II. After World War II, home heating switched more to gas um, and uh, non-coal subs- substances. So Uh, you know, the whole problem with soot on the wallpaper really wasn't a big deal anymore. So you had the soap company that was staying alive by having this material. And so, um, but it was no longer needed. So they're back to square one, about to go out of business. And meanwhile, several of the company's directors had died, and it was the nephew of the, the president that was just, he was 27 years old, didn't really know what to do. Well, his sister comes along and sees this, and she's a school teacher. And it's around Christmas time, and she says, hey, can I borrow this stuff? I want to make some ornaments. I mean, this seems like a, kind of a cool little thing. I want to make some ornaments for the kids in my class. And so he's like, yeah, that's fine. So he takes it, and, and, and this woman takes it and takes it to their class, and the kids love it. And they make these ornaments, and you can actually construct it. You can make it into this, these different molds, and, and it was really cool. And if you didn't, you, you didn't like it, you could just lump it in a ball, and you can make it into different molds. And so these kids like it. But even still, the market was only Cincinnati. And so Cincinnati, you know, that's fine. Kids loved it there, but they needed a broader audience. They needed a broader market. And so they contacted a man by the name of, I have his name here, a man by the name of Bob Keeshan. If you don't know who Bob Keeshan is, that's Captain Kangaroo. And so they, 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 they got this, this 27-year-old guy gets a hold of Captain Kangaroo, who has this television show, you know, 40s, 50s, and, and contacts him and says, hey, listen, I'm trying to market this stuff. You know, could you at least, you know, what, would you be willing to have it on your show? And if it does well, we'll give you 2% of all the profits. And he's like, okay. So they gave it this great name, 
Kutol's Rainbow Modeling Compound. It's a great marketing name. Well, the sister that was using this said, that's an awful name. So she and her husband were bandying about names, and you can probably know where this story ends. It's Play-Doh. What was once designed to clean wallpaper is now ground into the carpets of many of your homes. But there, I, I use that as an illustration. It's kind of a, a silly illustration, but it's something that was targeted for one area, and in turn, something else saw the exact same thing, saw it for its value, and received it. Can I tell you, a lot of times evangelism is like that as well. Where we pray earnestly for certain individuals, and we want to see them respond to the gospel, just like Paul carried the gospel first to the Jews. He wanted to see his own countrymen accepted. And yet, in their rejection, God opens the door for the Gentiles to receive it. The success in ministry that Paul experienced here, verse, uh, um, verse uh, 49 and the word, I'm sorry, verse 48, after Paul rebuked the, the Jews, verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as been appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. Wow. The success of the ministry, i.e. reaching the lost successfully, was an indication that God had gone out before them and was preparing the way, preparing the hearts for evangelism. But the success was short-lived at some level because of verse 15. Or I'm sorry, verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of the prominence, devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off their dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And they were not because their countrymen were accepting the gospel, but because now Gentiles were receiving the gospel. Even in the face of persecution, face of blasphemy, God had gone out before them, was preparing a way for the gospel to go forward, and He had another people in mind. The Gentiles who God was calling to the gospel. He did it earlier in chapter 13 with Sergius Paulus. He did it later in chapter 13 with the Gentiles, Pisidian Antioch. Okay, so what? Well, the person you may be the most burdened for spiritually may never respond to the gospel. But in the meantime, you may see others come to Christ that otherwise would not have come if they were silent. You know, as I was preparing for this, praying for this, I was thinking about individual saints in our church who have been witnessing to their lost spouses and family members for years. And they have the gospel and they've shared the gospel and they're living out the gospel and God doesn't seem to be answering their prayers. And yet, those same faces I can also think of in the context of our church and other souls that they've been able to see one to Christ or they've been able to disciple and bring along that maybe they otherwise would not have had that opportunity had they not been living out the gospel in the first place. The person, and here's the other thing. Here's the other thing. This is how, this is how God rebukes us. The person you may intend on ignoring just may be the person that God wants you to reach. You know? At some level, this is the significant theme of the book of Acts. The unwanted, the Gentiles, the Jews are like, no. And God's saying, yes. God was the one that sent them, remember? And they were going. And God, at the same time, was bringing others. They were going. And yes, they were going to both Jew and Gentile, but remember where they start and remember who's at the end. In all of this, verse 48, it's a comforting verse. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And here's why it's comforting, this, this last phrase. I don't think this is a throwaway phrase. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Amen. Meaning, there is the action of God and there's the action of man. 
and they dwell in perfect harmony. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. They're like two rails of a train track that end up at the throne of God. And at some level, we have a hard time understanding how they work. Is it the sovereignty of God? Is it the responsibility of man? And we have lots of theological arguments. But you know what? They all end up at the throne of God. And as a result, they will agree. And here you have God's sovereignty. As many as are appointed to eternal life, they did what? They believed. So that being said, it is natural as we look at the so what of the book of Acts. And we look at what is my role. We look at to whom God is sending me. And as I go, go, who God is bringing to me. As we're called to obey. It is natural to become discouraged when we have a burden for those who don't respond to the gospel. But what I want to leave with you is this. God's servants, regardless of their role, will have a missional function in God's plan. And that mission doesn't stop when our target audience rejects the message. Okay? Our mission doesn't stop when our target audience rejects the message. It continues. and God continues to bring. You know what ministry is a lot like? Ministry is kind of like having a, a job or having a responsibility I say ministry, like gospel ministry, sharing the gospel, investing in the gospel and others, not just unbelievers, believers as well. Gospel ministry is a lot like having a job. Maybe you're a landscape designer, okay? And you have this design for how this lawn is going to look and how it's going to be. You're going to have fountains, you're going to have rocks, you're going to have, you know, just perfectly manicured lawns, nicely edged, a good blend of the perennials, you know, so that they'll pop at different times of the year, and it'll just look great. And you have this plan, you put it all in in place, and, and you know, you leave at the end of the work day, and you've accomplished a bit, and you come back the next day, and not only is everything not there, everything is undone. And you look at all that you invest in, and you think, what happened? What's going on? And so you pick up the mess, try to fix things, put the rocks back where they were, maybe put the sod back where it was, replant the bushes that you just planted in there, and you do it, and you come back the next morning, and the exact same thing happens. You know, ministry is an awful lot like that. Because when we share the gospel, when we're going forward teaching God's word, we have to remember that we're not simply trying to convince people of truth. We are actually fighting wars against spiritual forces that actively oppose the work of the gospel. I mean, I take delight when I mow my lawn And at the end of it, I can see straight rows. Like, I have something to show for what I did. It looks good. You know, I take delight when I paint inside my house. And maybe there's scuffs and everything. And when I'm done, now it's maybe a new color. Can't see it very well, but it's a new color. Okay? And it's clean. If I knew that I was going to put all that work in, all investment, and it was going to be undone by something or someone else, man, that would really be frustrating. But can I tell you, that's much of the frustration that comes in ministry. And you know what? Sometimes I'm the one undoing it because of my stupid sin, because of my mistakes. And so you work and you work and you invest and you pour and you, you, you plug into lives and then you just see it not working. Sometimes it's even worse than before. All I want to do is just see the lines in my lawn spiritually. All I want to do is just see some level of progress. And we plug and we plug and we have these people that we're burdened for. But if we're not careful, sometimes if that's all we're focusing on, we completely forget all the other folks that God's drawing and all the other souls that have been contacted along the way. And maybe that was the point all along. 
And maybe our joy and our delight comes in obedience. Because as I look at the end of Acts 13, the disciples were continually filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. I don't think it was because everyone in Pisidian Antioch accepted Jesus. I think on some level it was because they were obedient and maybe God gave them what they weren't looking for initially or maybe what they weren't hoping for, but God was adding to his church because the gospel is going forward. May that buoy our disappointment and our frustrations as we carry the gospel where God calls us to. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day and for your word. It's a delight to read about our brothers in Christ and our sisters in Christ that lived 2,000 years ago. We ask, Lord, that you might encourage the souls that are here. Lord, when we talk about the Great Commission, when we talk about discipleship, when we talk about souls being saved, a lot of times we, we love hearing the stories of victory. We love hearing the stories of success. We love being able to see souls saved and, and sending out emails of new birth announcements and hearing of new discipleship relationships. But Lord, we also have the reality of the fact that there will be many who reject people that we love dearly, people that we want to see saved. And God, that hurt sometimes goes deeper than we think. And our brothers and sisters in Christ around us who come here faithfully, who serve faithfully, who serve in joy, have that ache of that loved one. God, be gracious. First of all, give them the joy that comes from obeying. Lord, we also ask that you might give them the desire of their heart. We don't know your ways. But Lord, we take comfort in the promise that your word never returns empty, that we're not spinning our wheels spiritually, and that God, it is your desire that all come to repentance. How that works, I don't know. But Lord, would we see fruit in areas where we really want to see fruit? And I'm thinking of specific people praying for specific souls. Your will be done. God, continue to give us souls. Lord, I think even of the policeman, Jim, who was here this morning, who saw the love of Jesus Christ and our love for him. He's been here. His son's been here. Draw him to you. Lord, it would be great to see him saved. Maybe we'll see him soon. But Lord, we love you. We trust in you. We thank you for your word. And I thank you for these souls. In Jesus' name, amen.